Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Zoe. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing some key moments from the second half of the Conservative Party conference, which took place in Manchester this week. To hear our coverage from the first half of the conference, take a listen to Monday's episode. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me down the line, I have Rachel Wearmouth, our deputy political editor, and Zoe Grunewald, our politics and policy correspondent. Now, neither of you could be in the studio today because of very conferency issues. Rachel, um, there are train strikes, um, so you're stuck in Manchester. And Zoe, I, I hear that you have already succumbed to the <laughs> notorious conference flu, which makes us sound terrible because we're making you we're making you work this morning. Um, how are you both? Um, I'm extremely grateful that my friend is in Stockport has put me up. I'm just um, trying to rest up so I can hit Labour Party conference next week. <laughs> It never you stops. Sound full of enthusiasm, <laughs> Zoe. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for doing all of this work so the rest of us didn't have to. Um, let's talk about Rishi Sunak's speech first. That was the sort of grand finale of conference. And there were a few announcements in there. Um, HS2, of course, something that was uh, leaked or briefed uh, or, or, you know, accidentally dominated the entirety of conference. That was probably the announcement that people were waiting for to scrap the Manchester leg of that high-speed rail project. It's been really controversial. You've had so many uh, major figures coming out against it. David Cameron, Boris Johnson, George Osborne, and of course, Andy Street, the West Midlands mayor. And so that came across as causing a lot of internal party division just from watching it from the outside as I was. So, Rachel, what stood out for you in terms of the other announcements from Rishi Sunak's speech? Um, well, I think the, the the one that kind of dominated and which is, is is the most interesting is the HS2 announcement because the Prime Minister is scrapping the, the high-speed line from Birmingham to Manchester, but the sort of quid pro quo, the compromise in that, it, that he spends the, you know, 30 billion plus on a lot of other smaller transport projects across the north called called Network North. I think that allows him to campaign in various um, target constituencies. And it's a trap for Labour in some sense because it forces them into a space where they may have to make a spending announcement or look like they're following the Conservative Party. So that is the headline story and it is the most consequential. But um, the one uh, announcement that I thought was really interesting and could actually be the Prime Minister's legacy was to raise the age we would ban smoking every year. So I propose that in future, we raise the smoking age by one year every year. That means a 14-year-old today will never legally be sold a cigarette and that they and their generation 
can grow up smoke-free. That will really annoy some conservative backbenchers, so he looks like he's going to be kind of taking on some people within his party. He probably hopes that makes him look a little bit more like a strong leader, but it's also something that will, that will command widespread support. And, and it's just a good, you could argue, it's very good policymaking because, as he kind of pointed out in his speech, there is no safe level of smoking. And it's one of the, I think it's the biggest cause actually of preventable deaths. On Labour's part, I mean, that's sort of semi their policy, isn't it? So they will be supporting it when he puts it to the Commons. Um, Wes Streeting announced that, well, didn't announce that he was necessarily going to do it, suggested it in an interview in hmm. January. So if, if it came down to relying on revolts, if they do need legislation for it, I imagine Mishi Sunak would be able to get it through. We also had a reiteration of something that we thought was coming down the line, uh, this introduction of the Advanced British Standard, which would be a new exam system to replace A-levels and T-levels. Um, and of course, this involves you know, teaching maths to 18, which is something that Rishi Sunak has announced before. Zoe, how significant is this part of his kind of policy platform that he was announcing in his speech? Well, I think it's very kind of typical of some of the things we've seen from Sunak so far. So quite a lot of his offering for his vision of the future is kind of having this more skilled population that's um, able to, you know, to take on careers in tech and innovation. And part of that is having a population that learns maths uh, to the age of 18. So we've seen this trail before. I think it's, yeah, as I say, mm -hmm. it's quite in keeping with, with I think, what people think of Sunak and the sort of leader he is. What I think is quite significant, though, is that apart from the A-levels, the scrapping of A-levels and the introducing of a new post-16 qualification and the, the smoking ban, there was really nothing for young people in that speech at all. And for a prime minister that's trying to set out his vision of the future, it's quite extraordinary that things like planning reform, housing, the environment, you know, none of these things were properly touched on. And we've seen quite a lot of rolling back of, of net zero, but he, he talked about wanting to be the candidate for, for change, which is sort of quite paradoxical considering the Conservatives have been in power for 13 years. And yeah, he doesn't actually present any kind of long-term vision for the future. I mean, it was a really quite weak conference speech. And that's aside from all the sort of horrible kind of culture war stuff that's been playing out. We saw lots of, we, you know, we saw him talk about trans people in quite a dehumanising way. And again, all of that seems to fit in with this kind of generational culture war that the conservative right have been waging, which Sunak lent into quite a lot there. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's quite surprising that there was so little for the younger generation in there. And, and the things he did announce seemed to be, I don't know, I guess for some young people might seem a little bit of a, a kick um, because it was just kind of more things you might have to do and won't be able to do rather than things that actually might make your you know, your life in the next 10, 20, 30 years better off. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Well spotted. And actually, you touched on something I really wanted to talk about, which was the wider framing of this speech, this idea, <laughs> this kind of wacky idea that he could somehow be a change candidate. He was saying that he wanted to reverse 30 years of status quo broken politics. And I thought 30 was quite an interesting number. I think it's the first round number that sort of stretches far back enough to kind of just after Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably why he chose it. But it did sound suspiciously like 13 on, on BBC News when I was watching the highlights of the speech. And I suppose that's not very helpful to him. But he seems to have picked up on this thing that Keir Starmer has been running with for a while, which is the country has an appetite for change um, and doing things differently. And, you know, long term decisions is part of the conference slogan. And that's something Keir Starmer has been sort of 
pushing for for a while with his end to sticking plaster politics and short term solutions. Clearly, you know, they're both hearing the same things from the public. Just Rishi Sunak was a little bit slow on the uptake. Um, I remember speaking to a pollster recently and their analysis was that the biggest mistake Rishi Sunak has made is not to distance himself with Boris Johnson and condemn the behaviour in Downing Street when that Privileges Committee reported and that was his opportunity and he lost the opportunity and you could see the sort of personal approval ratings changing since that point. Um, That could have been a moment perhaps to try and frame himself as a change candidate, which may have had a little bit more legitimacy. What did you think of this longer term decisions or long term decisions for a brighter future motto, Rachel? Um, well, it's a it's a it's a bloody mouthful for a start. It's not it's not it's not it's not a, a snappy slogan to take into an election necessarily. Well, nor was long term economic plan, but that works for David Cameron back in 2015. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I think some of the things he's doing kind of run very very counter to it, right? You know, the HS2 decision was all about. Um, improving the North's economy over decades, and not just you know, for the next five years, not just for an election term. And similarly, when he when he made his net zero announcements, when it, I mean, when he made that speech at Downing Street, it very much sounded like um, that was some that was going to be part of his conference speech. It was going to form, you know, part of the overall narrative which he's putting here, which is you've got to be able to allow families to save money and to get by now, rather than thinking about how the country saves money in the longer term. That's kind of how it, it that's how it's coming off, um, but. It, it it all looks like short-termism. And what I thought from watching the speech, you know, just just on TV, so I didn't get the atmosphere in the hall like you two did, but there were some parts of it that I thought worked well, particularly when he was talking about his own personal story. And obviously we have heard things about his background before because he's run in the Conservative Party leadership contest and talked about his backstory. But this was his first conference speech as Prime Minister and spoke about his family background. Um, and... Most interestingly to me, he called Britain the most successful multi-ethnic democracy on earth. I think it's always, you know, quite a good angle for politicians of ethnic minority backgrounds to take to talk in such positive terms about, you know, what the UK has given their families and, you know, where they'd be if it wasn't for for the UK and how, how it sort of welcomed them in now. That's something that you've seen from you know, Sadiq Khan to Sajid Javid, you know, it's 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 a well-trodden route, but it's it tends to it tends to go down well. But what was interesting about him taking this angle was that it directly jarred with what we'd heard from Suella Braverman uh, in her speech to that American think tank, which we spoke about on a previous episode of the podcast, um, where she was suggesting that um, multiculturalism was something that had been um, a failure in Europe. How do you square those two sort of Outlook, Zoe. Well, I don't know if you you can really. I mean, it, I do think I do think you're right that that bit worked quite well. But I do think that immigration has defined so much of Sunak's premiership. These conversations and this kind of ramping up of of anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, and just previously, the day before, you know, the Home Secretary had done another quite um, extraordinary speech where she talked about immigration as this hurricane that was coming. And that's all very, you know, mm-hmm. present in people's minds. Obviously, you're going to have a, a raft of uh, people there in the conference hall who are supportive of Sunak, who are supportive of Brasman. You know, this was the Conservative Party conference. But the, for the public who are watching that, um, and for many of them who will be concerned by Braverman's comments, I think Sunak's speech won't won't possibly impact them in the way he might have intended because it's still so soon after Braverman's been making these kind of comments. We know that Sunak's cabinet is quite diverse. You know, the Energy Secretary, we've got the Home Secretary as well, um, and obviously Sunak himself. And you know, 
that's great for representation in the UK. But when you have a government that's actively kind of putting forward these policies that are quite harmful um, to a number of immigrants, and when you've also got these policies that um, are kind of ramped and shrouded in this in this quite problematic rhetoric, I don't think it has the same effect on the rest of the general public as it might do on those sort of immediately within the hall who are supporting him. I, I think there's actually a broader problem that's that could be more interesting over longer over the long term, as in the way the Conservatives speak about um, immigration policy is always quite divisive. And I wonder if, you know, the, the hurricane language. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. It is quite dehumanising. But I also think that, that could undermine their credibility on the policy longer term, because it just I think it gives the overall impression that you're desperately trying to look to or you're trying to draw dividing lines rather than trying to do something that is a, is a genuine solution. The rhetoric's obviously not matching up with with their handling of the small boats crisis, which boats see get worse all of the time. Um, but that that lack of, you know, the, the, the failures on the on the small boats kind of uh, uh, matching the kind of rise in rhetoric as well. So I think people, I think voters in the end might try to, might eventually match up the kind of extreme language with policy failure. Well, after the break, we'll talk about Suella Braverman's speech further. And if you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We ended um, the first half by touching on some of Suella Braverman's comments about immigration. She spoke about a hurricane coming. Um, Zoe, what did you make of her speech? So her speech, I think, was pretty in keeping with quite a lot of the things we've heard from Braverman, over the, especially over the last month or so. Um, obviously, we referred to her speech uh, that she did last week when she was in the US. And um, where she was kind of setting out a bit of a case for the UK to maybe consider leaving the European Convention on Human Rights when she talked about wanting to get a handle on immigration, when she basically did a lot of blaming international institutions for the immigration crisis rather than national kind of policy failures. And we saw a bit more of that here. So we definitely saw her ramping up the rhetoric again, obviously the comments about the hurricane. She talked about, she used this strange phrase, luxury beliefs. So she was doing what she's done before with the sort of, I think she was the person who used to condemn the tofu munching Guardian reading Wokarati. But she was, she was you know, <laughs> continuing on that theme in this by suggesting that it's only people who have everything in life and are very comfortable from their ivory towers who can feel sympathetic to migrants and you know, believe in rehabilitative justice and things like that, um, which to me, I thought sounded very patronising. 
And kind of removed from the real world, ironically, she felt like like the one who was in the ivory tower. Because I go and report from a lot of food banks and a lot of um, community projects where people are trying to respond to the cost of living crisis and, you know, make life easier for people who are the most vulnerable in society. The people running these places are not the sort of bourgeois metropolitan academics or whoever she was having a go at. They're people who were embedded in their communities. They're, They're people who would describe themselves as working class people. You know, I think there's research that shows that those who are most generous in terms of giving to charity are actually those with, you know, not not as much as as the richest in society have. So I did think that that really jarred with reality to me. I kind of got what she was driving at in terms of that, you know, the same old populist, let's have a go at the metropolitan elite type rhetoric, but it just didn't ring true to me. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I've been surprised this year by how many friends have got in touch with me while knowing that I was at Conservative Party conference and said, how out of touch are these people? Like, I mean, I mean, this does not match with what I'm seeing. And this year it looks, you know, even more off the wall than some of their other conferences. Um, Boris Johnson in 2019 is one which stands out. I think it, this was a speech that was, it, it, it was probably in terms of its delivery and its oratory like the most impressive speech though. Um, and it was very clearly a pitch for the leadership. And I think it puts her, um, it makes her the front actually, because it was a very broad argument. It's obviously aimed at somebody who wants to be the leader of the opposition in future. She was asking the audience there to visualize her doing that job. But, but it did feel like it wasn't addressing the, the here and the now. I mean, did it go down well? Was I'm, I know that on the last podcast you spoke about the um, Liz Truss effect and, and Nigel Farage and all of these other kind of going for growth type right wingers dominating the conference. Was she was she sort of the other darling of the conference? Did you did you get that impression? I mean, what was the atmosphere like around her? I think it was the way she she pitched that speech, but matched it with being incredibly loyal. Because, you know, there's always been this saying in the Conservative Party in particular that if you, you know, if you wield the knife, you'll never wear the crown. And that mm. she obviously very much had that in mind, which was was smart, I thought, from a, you know, purely political perspective. But I kind of think she really blew people away with that speech, you know, judging by what people said on the way out. That's really interesting. And something else um, that came across just from sort of absorbing the conference from afar was how much kind of post-truthism was going on. So Claire Coutinho, the environment minister, kind of made up this policy that uh, that Labour's going to tax meat and sort of that unraveled during the course of an interview where she was questioned repeatedly about it and clearly didn't have a leg to stand on. Mark Harper spoke about the idea of 15-minute cities being sinister and that councils would tell you, you know, when and when not to go to the shops. I mean, that's, you know, a a well-established internet conspiracy theory. Are we at the stage where they are really just using, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, the Trumpian playbook in terms of just throwing stuff out there, knowing that it doesn't have a basis in reality, but hoping that it drives up some kind of base of voters that they want to turn out for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I almost got the impression that the Conservatives at this conference were appealing to several different sort of parts of their voter base. So I do think there was an appeal to some voters they think might actually believe this stuff. So, you know, the 15-minute city stuff, the, the Labour's coming see me and they come and see your flights and they're giving you all these bins. Oh, you know, that stuff, I think there is a core of people who who believe that and they're just trying to, you know, to to, to increase that belief. But, I, you know, I went to this um, spectator event, fringe event about net zero 
and uh, whether the, the government should, you know, sort of help the public um, change their behaviours. And there was this comment about Labour um, wanting to tax me. And the sort of, you know, the, the comments from the, the panel, of which had two, um, well, one government minister and one former government minister on, was like, oh, yeah, but, you know, Keir Starmer's a vegetarian. So that's, that's like what we're getting at there. And there was this kind of laughter, like, yeah, it's all a bit of a joke, really. You know, it's all just, it's all in good fun. He's obviously just a vegetarian. That's why we're saying it. So even if there's an understanding that it is not true, it's almost like, it, there's a feeling that it's harmless to say so or in some way it communicates, you know, something about the opposition, something jokey. Um, and I think these kind of these things are getting conflated. It's almost like, well, we have a sense of humour about this. We can laugh at it. But other voters might genuinely believe that, you know, the 15-minute city thing. And it just seems like there's this kind of lack of understanding of the consequences of some of their words and the impact it might have on voters and people watching and following these policies. And yeah, it just, it does seem like, you know, integrity in that sense, telling the truth about things and making sure the public understand really, really well the nuances of policy has sort of just been left in the gutter at this conference. And that actually, it's more about sound bites, it's about clicks, and it's about getting, you know, pe uh, ministers' faces out there or MPs' faces out there, even if the things they're saying aren't true as long as they're provocative. Mm, ironic as Sunak's whole mission seems to be wanting to do politics differently. Maybe this is what it means. I think if you're if you're the Conservatives and you're looking at the poll numbers at the way they are, you know, the huge polling chasm there is with your competitor, the thing you would fear most is the Labour Party running away with the narrative and having days, you know, dominating the news agenda, having days and days of their own stories on the on the front pages of newspapers. So you want to cause something of an, of an explosion and you want to drag some of the um, reporting on into your space and to be talking about the questions that, that you want asked. I think it's as simple as, as that, really. I think the, the Conservatives are probably worried about not being written about at all. You know, and I know, I know everyone saw in the, those first couple of days all the reporters who were there taking pictures saying it feels like a wick, there's nobody in the hall. You know, organisers of the conference will have been aware that that was coming down the track potentially. And I think that probably informs some of it. But I don't think um, everyone within the Conservative Party agrees with the kind of amplifying of conspiracy theories. You know, I saw Penny Mordaunt speak about it at a Conservative Friends for Israel event, for example. She was talking about a different issue. She wasn't talking about her own party, but the coded message was, you know, I'm not especially, you know, as a front bencher, I'm not especially comfortable with what's happening here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking us through how that conference went. And I will let you two go and rest because I know it's been an intense few days. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow to discuss the result of the Rutherglen by-election, Margaret Ferrier's old seat, which is taking place today. Next week, we'll be coming to you from the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. If you have any questions you'd like to ask, we'll be doing a dedicated You Ask Us session just after. You could submit a question at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Zoe Grunewald. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Thank you. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.